Greetings, dear listeners. This is another episode of the Remnant Podcast with uh, me, Jonah Goldberg. And uh, first of all, I want to say thanks to everybody for your continued support. Things are going great. Downloads are up. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Um, tell random people on the street um, about the Remnant. That would be great. Uh, keep the reviews coming. If you get this from nationalreview.com, that's great. You're a fine American, but you can be a super American. If you download this, if you subscribe and download on any of the great platforms where fine podcasts can be found. And uh, this week's episode, we have two sponsors. The first one is a returning visit from the Dollar Shave Club. Uh, Dollar Shave Club, as you know, as I've talked about before, is a big disruptor in the world, not just of razors, but in basically every hygiene need that a man today needs. Uh, they cover in, in, in cuisine, they would call it from what snout to tail of everything that the active man on the go needs. Uh, they started with razors. They have fantastic razors, but they also have almost every, literally everything else you can think of to look, smell, and feel your best. Shampoo, body wash, toothpaste, and of course, the best razors I've ever used. I get an amazing high-quality shave every morning from the Dollar, my Dollar Shave Club executive razor. This is one of the great things about doing a podcast is you start to get swag, and so I get a lot of this stuff. One of the things I really love about uh, Dollar Shave Club is, for me, I travel a lot. I go a lot of places. I always forget something. I just basically take the whole kit. I keep it in my luggage, and that way I know I'm covered no matter what, whether I want to brush my teeth or shave at an airport or if I forgot something and I can't get it from the front desk at a hotel late at night or what they do have is sort of gross or weird. Um, they cover the whole thing. Um, and the true gold standard of any morning routine is, of course, their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter. It's like butter. It helps the razor glide gently across your skin. Dollar Shave Club delivers everything to you. That means no more trips to the store, wandering the aisles, hunting for razors, shampoo, toothpaste, or taking time out of your day to go shopping so you can play at being a cashier, scanning and bagging your own stuff. So here's what they call the call to action in this ad. It's go for the gold. Join the Dollar Shave Club today, and for just 5 bucks with free shipping, you'll get their Shower Shave Starter Set. It has the six-blade executive razor plus travel sizes of the shave butter, body cleanser, and the one-wipe Charlies, which we call here the Paul Krugman column. Then, keep the blades coming for a few bucks more a month. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash dingo. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash dingo. Oh, and I should say, in the last podcast... We the, the phrase that pays or the code for the website for uh, um, ZipRecruiter was remnant. That should still work for you, but it was a mistake, and the appropriate people have been flogged. Um, the phrase that pays will always be for us, Dingo. Um, use it everywhere. Use it for you know people who don't advertise here. I'll get the word to them that we are all powerful. But I want to thank Dollar Shave Club. I want to thank uh, ZipRecruiter, and uh, I want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, we're going to go right to our conversation with Brian Kaplan, and uh, thanks for listening. We're going to start uh, right off straight away with our conversation with Brian Kaplan. He's a professor at George Mason University. 
He is a notoriously smart and intense dude who uh, is so sharp you'll get a paper cut just shaking his hand. And uh, he has a new book out making the case that, at least as a nation, we're wasting a vast amount of money on education, particularly higher education. But I'll let him make that case himself. Uh, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for that fine introduction. (laughs) Couldn't agree more. (laughs) So let's just do some place-setting stuff. You're a professor of economics at GMU. That is correct. Your specialty is? I have a lot of specialties. So, I mean, I do... Uh, political economy, public choice. I do economics of the family, labor economics, and uh, education economics. And I also do a lot on economics of immigration. Okay. So uh, long-time listeners of this short live podcast know that I like to get a little wonky on the um, – or a little weedy on the sort of intellectual school labels and all of this kind of stuff. You fancy yourself a libertarian, right? Uh, absolutely. Okay. In what what tradition of libertarianism do you hail? Are you a Hayekian, a von Misian? Are you, would you I mean, call yourself an Austrian? Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, again, I, I, I would say that the economist I most identify with that your readers probably heard of is Milton Friedman. Okay. So, you know, like, I mean, so, I mean, I mean to think of it as something where it's you know, like some big dogma where you have to believe 20 different weird things before we can even have a conversation that's exactly the opposite of where I come from. Uh, I mean, so the philosopher that's most influenced me is a guy named Michael Humer at the University of Colorado, who uh, has a great book called uh, The Problem of Political Authority. So if you really are curious about libertarianism, I think that's really the best single philosophical book. But, you know, I mean, I'm very eclectic and I just try to read widely and see what a lot of people have to say. I mean, one of one of my um, agenda, one of my motives for asking the question is when People who are not libertarians argue with libertarians. There's a tendency for libertarians to say that we are monolithically consistent on mm-hmm. our positions. Mm-hmm. And then the second you actually spelunk into the ecosystem of libertarianism, mm-hmm. there's an enormous amount of disagreement among libertarians. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's it's the old story of you know, you know, two libertarians, three factions. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, two Jews, five opinions. Uh, we got to stop for just a second. That reminds me. About our second sponsor of this show, we'll get to the full ad in a minute, but it you know it sort of touches on a lot of this stuff. It's my friend uh, David L. Bonson, who you may have seen from CNBC or Fox Business. He's one of those uh, you know money people, um, but he's also a deeply committed and patriotic and brilliant guy. He does a lot of stuff for National Review. He's actually on the board of NRI. And he's got a new terrific book out called The Crisis of Responsibility. I'll tell you more about it in a little bit. But this is just basically to remind myself that um, I got to do this ad in a little bit. And we're really pleased that he decided to advertise um, on The Remnant. So uh, why don't we start because the, the, the single greatest question I can attest from my own book tours to be asked by an interviewer is what's your book about? So what's what's your book about? Make your case. Yeah, my book is about how we're wasting an enormous amount of time and money on education as a society because even though education is generally selfishly a good investment, it's not a very good investment for taxpayers, right? And again, like what's the difference? Well, I say, you know, the key difference is that – or, you know, the the root difference is that so much of the payoff from education comes not from actually acquiring useful skills in school but just from jumping through hoops and showing off to impress employers – and while individually showing off is very helpful, but socially we can't all show off to each other and enrich the nation. So, you know, this is, there's something called the signaling model of education that I build on very heavily. It's an idea that's been around for about 40 years in economics, but mostly at the level of high theory. And I just try to say it's actually a very 
empirically relevant idea that doesn't ne- get, doesn't get nearly the attention that it deserves. All right. So why don't you explain what signaling is? Right. So I mean, in general, that's the, yeah, I mean, yes. that's the that's the the biggest argument. Yes. Of your yes. Book. Yeah. It means you know signaling. You know, like you know, some synonyms would just be a certification. Or you know, or like, or getting stamps in your forehead, jumping through hoops. You know, the idea of signaling is uh, simply this: employers can't easily just take a look at you and know whether you're a good worker or not. So they have to figure it out. Now, how in our society do employers get around to figuring it out? Uh, well, one of the main things they do is they take a look at your formal educational credentials. And you know, why do they do this? Well, if you're able to do well in school, then you are on average likely to be a better worker. And so it makes sense for employers to throw away applications from people that don't have the right credentials, even though we all know there's some perfectly good workers in that trash can. Um, and at the same time, of course, if you have a fancy degree, but you're not that good, you may be able to worm your way in and, you know, and, and eke, you know, eke out or actually you know, get, it, get a pretty decent income. The main thing is, you know, is saying that when you go to school, one of the most important things you're doing is just impressing employers by not only you know, jumping through a bunch of hoops, but also, of course, completing the degree. And then at the end of that race, at the end of the finish line, there's usually bags of money waiting for you. Right. I mean, it's usually one of the most persuasive points that you make on this is that the return on i mean what, what the 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 return on a, on a college degree is what 83% what, what was the number you know, so you know, so you know that you know, that that's that's way too high so uh, you know there's something called the premium which would be like 73% that's just saying like like on average how much more do college graduates make than high school graduates now that doesn't mean that if you just send a high school graduate to college that he'll make 73% right. more because there's a, bun- a bunch of issues with that and then on top of it one of the really big issues in education at all levels but especially college is just not finishing is again you know one of the more interesting signs that signaling is so important is that most of the payoff for college comes from graduation you could do 3 years of college and barely get any bump in your earnings if you quit but if you just tough it out for that one last year then there's a big payday which, you know, if you think that people are getting paid more for their education because they're learning useful skills, that's really weird. I mean, what? Do, we, do you think that, that schools withhold the useful job lessons until senior year? You know, that sounds like nothing right. I've ever heard of. In fact, normally we think of senior year as goof-off year when, if anything, you learn less. Right. But if you believe that what's going on is that you're signaling, well, like one of the main things that you signal by finishing your degree is that you are conforming to social expectations. You are fulfilling your destiny or doing what your parents and teachers and peers all said that you have to do. And when you do that, you know, ta-da, well, now I'm worthy of getting a well-paid job, whereas just two weeks ago, if I'd given up, I would be unworthy. Right. But I mean, but part of the signaling is also is that you're providing a a concrete metric for employers, right? Mm-hmm. So if you come up two weeks shy of your diploma, your employer can't go to his superiors and say, "Hey, we hired this great kid because mm-hmm. he doesn't have his degree." Right? I mean, it's just a yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, so you know, goes all the way down. So it means you know, if you happen to have a friend at the at, at, at the firm, the friend may feel like, "Well, I can't convince other people. I know that you're good, but I can't convince other people unless you have it. Otherwise, you know, they'll say it's just nepotism." So you know, you know, so like the, you know, I mean, there there is the issue where you know, like the uncertainty can go down at you know, multiple different levels, and you know, people may want plausible deniability. Although still, I mean, if it really were true that people that were college graduates just were not, in fact, better workers than people who were not, then it seems extremely likely that firms would get get a lot more open minded about who they're willing to hire. So it's not a dumb thing for them to do from the point of view of the bottom line. But uh, the big problem, as, as I talk about a lot in the case against education, is that the more education that people have, the more that you need to be considered worthy of employment. 
And, you know, since 1940, the amount of education that you need to get one and the same job has risen by about three years. Again, it's not that the jobs are really more technically demanding than they used to be because this is, again, one of the same. It's like to be a cashier today or a waiter today. You know, there has been a shift to some more intellectually demanding jobs, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that for one and the same job, you now need almost a full additional degree to be considered worthy. Right. And again, if, if, the, if it were just a question of skills, then there's no reason for employers to pay extra for an onion for a superfluous degree. But if it's a matter of impressing people, well, the more degrees people have, the more you need to look like you're good enough. Right. I mean, th- there's an analog to this in journalism where hmm. um, Colum- Columbia journalism schools, sort of the Harvard of journalism schools. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, my dad, who was a newspaper editor for decades, um, hated journalism schools, and his 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 view was better to hire someone who knew something and and teach them the bogus sort of uh, you know uh, inverted, rituals, yeah, the of, inverted pyramid, right? You know, it's like you know he would get people who come to him and say, "Well, I have a degree from Columbia Journalism School. I should get this job to be a reporter, a correspondent in Russia." Mm-hmm. And my dad would be like, "Well, do you speak Russian?" And like, "Well, no." And like, "Do you know anything about Russian history?" "No, but I have a degree in journalism." My dad was like, "I could teach you journalism, how to write a good lead paragraph in a day. Um, I can't teach you Russian, right? I can't teach you a subset." Mm-hmm. And but the problem is that throughout the journalistic industry, it's a guild. And so it, there's a desire to protect the value – the people who are hiring want to protect the value of their degree from Columbia. And so mm-hmm. they give this huge premium on that degree and it becomes self-fulfilling. And so you actually mm-hmm. do have to go to Columbia Journalism School often to get the kind of jobs that you want, not because it will improve your skill set but because it will give you this piece of paper. Yeah, yeah. The self-fulfilling point is crucial. So I have a section in the book called Locked-In Syndrome where you know people say, well, well, come on, there's got to be some other way of doing it. And I say, look, since one of the main things you're signaling their education is just sheer conformity and that you are willing to submit to the established norms of our society, if someone came up with a brand new, weird, crazy way of signaling conformity, it wouldn't signal conformity. It would signal nonconformity. Right. right? And that's the problem. <laughs> um, so I, I want to stay on this book for a bit, but I, I, I want to get meta on a couple things, as I warned you before. I love meta. And um, so – Part of your argument, though, is going to bother a lot of people um, in that you're, you're, you're basically a deep skeptic on the idea that people who go through college are actually educated about much of anything at all. All right. So, you know, so what I say is, you know, like if you study a very specific topic, then you're probably going to learn a good amount about that. You know, of course, depending upon what the topic is or if there's very – You learn a language. Yeah. For yeah if, you, you know, if you learn a language, engineering, computer science. Uh, but – if we actually go and just try to measure how much of that stuff you still remember a few years later, if you don't use it on the job, then you're likely to forget most of it. And then there's a lot of other things that we usually attribute to college graduates where there's just very little evidence that they actually really improve much. So you know, most notably on learning how to think or learning how to learn, this is you know, sort of the last refuge of an academic scoundrel, I say, because <laughs> you know, if your subject seems completely irrelevant, then what do you say? Well, it doesn't really matter what I'm teaching you to think about. What's the important thing is that I am teaching you how to think. Uh, but there's a whole you know, profession or a whole, a whole field of people who go and measure these claims. It's called educational psychology. They've been doing it for about 100 years. They want to find the result that there is a lot of learning how to learn. And yet after 20 or 30 years as a researcher, most of them emerge shell-shocked and say, wow, like there doesn't seem to be much sign that people do learn how to learn. It seems like learning is highly specific. And really the way that people get good at what they do isn't by receiving lectures on proper thinking skills. It's by doing. 
you know, the way that someone gets good at flying a plane, you have to put them in the simulator, put them in the cockpit. That's what be that's what what works. You don't go and give them a history class and they learn how to think and then on a foggy night while they're flying their plane, then ah, oh, well, since I know how to think, I'll be able to reason correctly in this difficult situation. You know, like that that's just not not how it works in practice. And so also just to clear out the brush, part of your argument is also that sort of the methodological assumptions that people make about the premium on college education don't look at the question of who's going to college in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Well, so I mean, out of, so out of researchers, there's there's a lot of work on this, but uh, the main thing I mentioned in the book is that there's a, you know there's a lot of what I see is very solid early work that shows exactly what common sense would say, which is that much of the extra earnings that college graduates get are actually due to their pre-existing intelligence and work ethic and and and, and other traits. Uh, but in the last 20 years, there's been some very high-tech revisionism in economics especially where they say, oh, well, actually, contrary to what all common sense would say, really like the whole extra difference in earnings between college grads and high school grads is causal and there isn't this selection problem. And you know, this is what I was taught in, you know, taught in grad school and I was you know, reading a lot about it and say that seems really hard to believe. And you know what, what I you know I say in the book is that when people tell you that they're throwing out not only a lot of the evidence they're throwing out the best evidence in favor of some other stuff which is very technically demanding but it isn't actually very convincing and then on top of it almost everyone who is trying to measure education as an investment is forgetting this basic fact that a lot of people don't finish right. Right now, the funny thing is there there are people who study completion, but they don't really talk very much to the people who study the economics of it. And one of the things I say in the book is you can't go and study one without the other. If only half the people finish, then you can't say – you can't go and measure the payoff based upon the success stories. You've got to look ahead and say what are the odds this particular person will ever reach that, that level of success. And if you're advising someone, you should definitely factor in, well, what are the odds this kid is even going to is going to finish the first year, much less the degree. Um, which also goes goes towards the, the sort of the point about how if you were acquiring all these valuable skills in the market and you came up two weeks short of getting your diploma because you got mono or something, you should still see the payoff, right? But you don't yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you know, you know, like there, there, there's a little bit for you know for the earlier years. I mean, most of it comes from crossing the finish line for college. You know, basically, the last year is worth more than twice the first three years combined. Okay. All right. So you know, it's 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 an enormous and shocking disparity, which again, you know, like pe- like I mean, people have looked at. It, they say, well, can it really be that big? And you know, make a lot of adjustments. And yeah, it looks like it really is genuinely that big. You know, you know, which which I think should make a lot of sense to anyone who's actually gone through the college circuit, because you know, how do we regard people who give up towards the end? It's like, well, they didn't finish, and so they are unworthy to be right. part of our company. Although people who go on the six year plan in college, mm-hmm. they were drunk all the time. They get the premium, right? Yeah. I mean, so the key thing is they, is they or their parents had to go and give up six years worth of tuition and earnings in order, in, in order to get there. Right. So, you know, like if you take six years, you are getting only, about, you know, you're roughly getting two thirds of the return of someone who took four years. Uh, so there is, you know, for people like that, there is a big difference in the, in the, in the return on investment that they're getting. But yeah, I mean, at least if you finish in six years, you still are likely to have a lot of doors open up for you. But they're not getting two thirds of the return 
over their lifetime, right? They're just getting their, well, well, I mean, their you know, investment well, here, is- well, here's the key thing is, uh, you know, so when economists say return, we're thinking about it the same way we would look at uh, the rate of return on a bond or any other investment. So basically, if you pay 150% of the investment and, get, and then get the same payoff, that means that you're only getting two-thirds of the payoff back. Just like, you know, if you put $1,000 in the bank and you get $20 back at the end of the year, that's a 2% return. If you had to put in 1500s in the bank to get to get that same $20, then it's going to be, you know, what, what a you know, a four thirds of a percent. Uh, yeah, but it seems to me, and not not to be too contentious, but as a parent, mm-hmm. you wouldn't think of it in those terms, would you? I mean, if if your kid mm-hmm. yeah, screwed yeah. around and then got serious, and you say, okay, well, we're going to pay for another year or two of college so you can get your degree, it's a worthwhile investment. Yeah, so that's, that's actually a great question as to what parents are really thinking. It's one that one that I, I wish there's actually more work on. I think you're probably exactly right because most parents are not quants, just like, of course, their kids are not quants. They don't think they're running the numbers through a spreadsheet to go and figure out whether it's worthwhile. Part of what I try to do in the book is to say, well, I'll run the numbers through the spreadsheet for you and I'll give you some advice. Right. So, I mean, like, like, here, like here is the, the key part of the story, which is that if the main thing you wanted to do was just to give your kid a better income – and and if you were getting a crummy, if you were getting you know suppose you're only getting a two percent return, uh, then you could say, well, tell you what, instead of sending you to college, I'll go and put the money in bonds, and then you can live off the interest, and you'll actually have a higher income for the rest of your life. Probably what you're getting at, which I think is true, is that parents often are really sort of buying some pride for themselves. And if their kid had a good income, but they had uh, basically they had a mediocre job, plus they had some investment income their parents gave them. Most parents would not feel very good about that. Yeah, or, but, you yeah, also, yeah, yeah. but you also wouldn't feel good. I mean, what you're trying to get for your kid is a sense of accomplishment, and yeah, yeah. and and there are externalities there that I think are pretty yeah. important. That and look, I mean, I went to college, and I had a lot of friends who thought I was nuts that I didn't care about what job I was going to get when I got out. I want I I'm actually a believer in the liberal arts, which we're going to get to, and and I always thought that going to college simply with a sort of laser focus on the job you're going to get when you get out. I don't want to say it was a bad idea because for some people it's the, it's exactly the right idea, mm-hmm. but it was never my idea. Right. You know, and because you never know, you know, I, I, I think that young people in general plan too much about their future, but that's a different issue. Hmm. Um, that sounds to contradict all my experience, but, but, um, but, um, but I, 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 I'm not you. I don't well, know. no, I, I should say that there's certain kinds of young people who go to college and are overachievers and stuff. <laughs> who are these kids? That, <laughs> it's the exact opposite of what I see. I see a lot of kids going, oh, I don't know what's going on. What's going on? And I'm just checking my phone again. But, you know, it's funny. So, I mean, this is another sort of anecdotal aside. Uh, so my first job at a, in Washington was here at AEI, and um, I started as an intern here, and I was a nerdy, eggheady guy, right? And I was catching up on a lot of uh, education that I had missed, and so I really threw myself into sort of conservative, libertarian, e- intellectual history, and all this kind of stuff. And I was so excited to be here because it was such a it was at the it was the belly of the beast, right, mm-hmm. for someone like me. And in nineteen, I want to say ninety five, ninety six. Forbes or Fortune, one of those kinds of magazines came out with, or U.S. News came out with the list of the best internships in America. Mm -hmm. And AEI was like number seven. And all of a sudden, the nature of the interns changed Mm. dramatically. It used to be, we would get a lot of kids from Harvard and Yale and all that kind of stuff, but they were here because there was a selection bias. They wanted to come work for Gene Kirkpatrick or Robert Bork or whoever, and they knew what this place was about, and they knew about the ideas, and they were engaged in it. It was like a vocation for them. And then all of a sudden, you would get all of these kids, some of whom were very smart, some of whom weren't, 
A careerist. Who were purely careerist. And if they didn't get the internship at AEI, they would have gone to Greenpeace, which was number eight on the list, or ExxonMobil, which was three on the you know. And it was purely a resume thing. And the quality and nature of the interns changed dramatically. And I do think that there is this interesting thing among sort of overachieving young people today that it is – it is it is really about sort of just checking the boxes on the credentials rather than about being engaged or being in love with the actual stuff that they're doing. Right, and the striking thing is they can succeed very well by by going through this careerist route, and you know it, it is the it is the normal route. I mean, you know, so you know, like in the book, just talk about how you know totally normal for students to seek out the easy A. You want to go and right. get the sticker on your forehead. I did this class while learning as little as possible. Right, and you know, if like you were in school to go and get job skills, this would be crazy. But if you're there primarily just to show off, and you know, then it's like, wow, I get to I get credit for jumping through hoops without having to break a sweat. This is really nice. Okay, so I'm going to return to that in a second uh, when we get to the meta stuff. But uh, just to circle back on the last thing, you are not arguing that no one should go to college. Oh, that's correct. Uh, so, and again, you know, there's there's two different questions asked. So, one is is college selfishly a good good a good deal for you or for your kid, and then the other one is is it actually a good investment for society to encourage? So, on the is it a good investment for you? You know, my general answer is as long as you were a very good high school student, then it probably is a fine investment for you, because you know, you know most obviously you're very likely to finish, and so you know, like you'll get that pot of gold that's over the finish line. Uh, I mean, I you know, so my, I do have you know some doubts about or you know, about whether college is a good idea, selfishly speaking, for mediocre students. And there, my answer is you know probably not. Begin because your completion odds are so poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the main thing I focus on is from the point of view of taxpayers. Like, right. Is this really a good thing for society to be encouraging? And that's where I say you know like it's very you know like you know, very very unclear what the, what the, what the point of all the taxpayer support is again because the main effect I say of encouraging it is just that we get this proliferation of credentials and then. The the more people have, the more you need to be deemed worthy of employment. So Alison Wolf, you know, she is, I think you quoted Yeah, 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 yeah. I looked at her stuff a while back. I guess one of the things that drove me crazy about the sort of high watermark of sort of Obama, Tom Friedmanism Mm -hmm. (laughs) was how we are losing in the brain race against China and that we need to pour vast sums into education um, if we're going to be globally competitive. And I'm, I think the whole, I agree with 1990s Paul Krugman about the whole idea of competitiveness between sure. nations and this i so this why the reason why i bring it up is you had a great conversation with russ roberts on econ talk which is what gave me the idea to have you on here and um i did this piece for national review online i'll link to it on my um, website where you guys talked a lot about the expected return um on the premium for college education and my view about this is that uh, most parents, I mean, some parents, I think some working class parents who dream of sending their kid to college mm-hmm. might think about their kid getting rich by going to college. Mm-hmm. But what they're really looking for is their kid being secure in the sort of bourgeois middle class, mm-hmm. right? Every Jewish parent out there for a thousand years has wanted their kid to become a doctor or a lawyer because... Or a rabbi. Or a rabbi, right. <laughs> yeah. Certainly as you get into the thousand, at the outer end of the thousand years ago. And... um because there's job security there, right? And so education, I think for a lot of people, they don't think of it as terms of a way to get rich. They see it as a hedge against being poor. 
Right. So I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, I mean, so you just read that piece, you know, very, uh-huh. very interesting. I would say, I mean, I can believe a lot of people think that, uh-huh. but if that's what you think, you really should think again, because, you know, in the modern economy, it is very common for people to finish their college degree and then end up in it with it in a, in a job that you don't really need college in order to do. So, you know, like well, poets yeah, deserve to be yeah. poor, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm talking like, you know, waiter, cashier, bartender, yeah. bartender, you know, security guard. If you go and, you know, these are all common jobs for college graduates. So in no way, is college really giving you any kind of a floor on how bad th- badly things can turn out? I was just doing another interview with a journalist whose son you know, finished his degree in game design and he's working at McDonald's. Right. So, I mean, and, and, you know, so, you know, probably, a, you know, a good rough number is about 30 percent of people with college degrees have jobs that you would just totally think of as being non-college jobs. So it doesn't you know, like so it's pretty crummy insurance if there's a still a 30 percent chance that you end up in a job that you could have gotten without having college. OK, well, but, you know, part of that, I mean, it reminds me of there was a great piece in I think it was in The Nation during the Occupy Wall Street boom where some person had quit their good-paying job as a New York City public school teacher, which is a good-paying job, to go back to school to get a master's in puppetry. (laughs) (laughs) And then was outraged that they couldn't find work as a master puppet, right? (laughs) Or puppet master. And um, (laughs) and, uh, uh, I'm not not discounting that people make bad choices in what they major in, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. the the right tale of the distribution of rich – art history majors is probably pretty thin, right? I mean... Um, well, except they tend to come from rich families. So, right, okay. Yeah, so, that. so that, that helps them out. But, and that's sort of yeah. part of, but that's sort of part of it, right. too, is, is, is forget being a hedge against being poor. It's a hedge against having a non-respectable career, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, th- there is the status element of it would be okay for my kid to go and have a modest income as long as it were in a job where I feel socially comfortable with him having that job. Right. Whereas if he had high income and, he, and were a plumber, then I just wouldn't feel very good about that. Would, you know, and you can have a very problem. high income yeah. as a plumber. Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, so I mean, I think you know, like you know, here's the main thing that I see as a professor, which is anyone who thinks that parents are carefully planning out their kids' future and and like crafting right. a, a good path for their kids. This is just not what I see at all. Like, so I mean, I have been a professor for 21 years. You know how many times I've ever had a parent call me up or even email me trying to go and uh, like to find out what's going on with their kid or help their kid out or get some useful advice for their kid. Zero times. Right. Parents we write the checks and they and I believe and I think you're totally right. The parents do have aspirations, but there is such a norm of, well, you should your kid should be able to decide what he majors in and and like should just be able to free to go and spend your money to do whatever he feels like. Yeah, and I would I would say like you know, especially if your kid is wasn't that wasn't you know well, didn't do that well in high school, I'd say this is this is just a crazy approach. If you think it's worth paying for him, then this is a time to really be paying attention. Well, what are you gonna major in and what are your grades? And let's take a look at this to see, you know, like, you know, this, this is your future and our, and our money. So I want you to go and perform. So fun trivia, because I don't know when there will ever be an opportunity to bring this up again. My understanding, I learned this when I taught a class at Hillsdale College a few years ago um, on journalism. And uh, it is apparently against the law for a college professor to tell parents of one of their students what their grades are. <laughs> and uh, Totally believe it. No one's ever told me, but uh, it's never come up. <laughs> and, and the reason I found this out at Hillsdale is because, because Hillsdale doesn't take federal matching funds. Mm. The parents are allowed to get their grades from their professors at Hillsdale, mm. but almost at no other university in the country. <laughs> and and the, trivi- the fun trivia about this is I believe that law was written by uh, Jim Buckley, William F. Buckley's brother, when he was a senator, a conservative senator from New York. 
Oh, and that reminds me, I, I got to get to our second ad of the day, That's which I talked about earlier, and it's for uh, David Bonson's great book, The Crisis of Responsibility. So many National Review readers or podcast listeners listening probably already know David L. Bonson's great work here as a writer and a podcaster for National Review. Well, David has just released an important and highly praised book entitled, and I, when I say highly praised, I mean including by me, um, highly praised book entitled The Crisis of Responsibility. It explores America's cultural addiction to blame in politics and society and how to fix it. I think it's an important book in part because it gets to the, some of the stuff that I was talking about, the kind of people that we're raising as sort of exemplars of how to live in society where everything is somebody else's fault. Everybody is looking for reason to blame somebody else. Everybody thinks that if things don't go the, their way, they shouldn't be held accountable for it and that it's the system that's to blame and not their own mistakes or just bad fortune. Um, as I said in my um, – when I blurbed the book, I said, only when the great mass of people reawaken to their civic duties will they be able to wrest control of America from an elite that has shown its failure to lead again and again. David Bonson's new book is the first step along this important path. Sally Pipes, our friend, called it a must-read. Rich Lowry, who is not right about everything, but he's right about this – calls it a bracing and incisive critique of our increasingly pervasive culture of victimization. And the great Victor Davis Hanson calls it a message of hope and renewal that is now as rare as it is needed. So you can get the book from all fine booksellers, but you can also go to crisisofresponsibility.com. That's crisisofresponsibility.com. And thanks to David for advertising on this podcast and congratulations on a terrific book. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Okay, so now for the for the meta part, right? You correct me if any of these characterizations are unfair or wrong. Sure. Myth of the Rational Voter, which was your first book, uh-huh. yep. argues that just like parents aren't rationally calculating mm-hmm. their kids' path mm-hmm. through life, mm-hmm. voters aren't rationally calculating much of anything either, right? Yes. Well, in fact, I say you know, voters are much worse. And at least with parents, you are the one stuck with the bill. So there's some reason to you have skin in the game. As it yeah, you've got a lot of skin <laughs> in the game. Voters, you know, like the individual voter really has no skin in the game. What are the odds that if you vote, if you vote poorly, that anything different will happen to you than if you had voted well? Okay. So, Very slim. All right. So check that box. Then this, your second book, the, which was about how you should have more kids. What was yep. the title of it? Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. Okay. Why Being a Great Parent is, uh, is More Fun and less work, or less, fun, less work and More Fun Than You Think. And part of your thesis there was that parents don't have all of that much influence over how their kids are going to turn out, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. And and I've had this argument with Charles Murray. He too, because mm-hmm. you people with your witchcraft look at the data and all this and you're <laughs> insistent that, that parents can't really change their kids' personalities. Can't, and, can't, just don't. Can't and don't are two very different things. Uh, don't is what we see. Can't is, can't is speculation. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll put an asterisk on that. And then in this book, you are you – are, Extremely skeptical of the idea that for the vast amount of college education, um, there's much real lasting learning that's going mm-hmm. on, okay? Um, which doesn't mean that no one should go to college, but maybe we shouldn't subsidize it the way mm-hmm. we do and all the rest, yeah. right? Okay, so I've just spent the last three years working on this book. I, I'm a big fan of Deirdre McCloskey, mm-hmm. right? I'm also – I was also very much influenced by the institutional economic stuff. So the institution people argue that the whole – root and branch of modernity is thanks to sort of institutional pluralism, right? Mm-hmm. And both in terms of physical institutions, but also sort of the the rule of law and, and getting buy-in from people mm-hmm. into things. Now, and Deirdre McCloskey's argument, on the other hand, is that modernity and, and modern liberal democratic capitalism and all that is basically the product of words, 
the way we talk about things, right? For most of human history, innovation was a bad word. Then it becomes a good word. And, uh, and uh, the sovereignty of the individual, all of these bourgeois virtues that she writes in several of her books. Now, in your oof, I think we can now say, right, you, have, you take the position that voters are not rational that, um, and are not particularly susceptible to reason, that parents really don't have that much influence over how their kids turn out. And so they should stop worrying about it mm -hmm. so much. And now you argue that education really doesn't have that many lasting impacts. So why aren't we still in the trees, right? I mean, if, if, mm -hmm. if, if none of these institutions and reason itself has very little impact, why until about 300 years ago um, did we live in a very, very different world? Yeah, so I mean, of course, all these books are based upon comparing different things that can happen within a, cult, uh, within a culture, Right. So, I mean, like, you know, if you want to well, if you ask me, what is something that would make a big difference for an individual? I'd say, yeah, move someone from Congo to Britain. Right. OK. Right. So, you know, like, you know, so and like there's 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 great work on this. So if you go and do an international adoption of a kid from an orphanage in a third world country, raise them in Sweden or Britain or the U.S., they, you know, they do dramatically better in almost every way you can imagine than if they had stayed back at home. So you know, there are there are environmental changes so vast that they can have a vast effect on the individual. But most of the changes that we focus on aren't like that. So, you know, like, like for kids. So, you know, so like, like if you could be adopted by either a really wealthy family or, 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 or like a working class family, as long as they're both within the U.S., what the, what the data say is that the, the adult you turn into is not going to be that different either way. But, of course, if you could be either be grow up in the modern U.S. or be sent back in time to, 12, to the year 1200 in England, well, then there's going to be enormous differences. So, I mean, you know, you know, a way you might think of a lot of this is that we overrate every specific mechanism for change. Even though, of course, yes, when you add them all together, it comes out to something big. Um, now, in the case of education, what I would say is, you know, though it's hard for intellectuals to believe, like the amount of, of, of abstract knowledge that the typical American adult has is just shockingly low. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And then you say, well, like, how can that be given that we have this great modern society? And the answer is the division of labor. So even people who could not have an intelligent conversation with you about the Civil War or about genetics or, or like any other nerdy topic, they can still be a fantastic plumber, right? And you know, how is it? Well, because they learn it by doing. And that's the way that people actually generally get good at their jobs is by, is by with a lot of practice. It's not primarily by getting a lecture on, on a theory or something like that. And really, when you look around at modern society, it is the product of people training and specializing in a bunch of narrow areas. And then each of us you know, you know, each of us is the steward of the area that that we actually know a lot about, and it adds up to this incredible, uh, incredible civilization. Now, in terms of the politics, yeah. So, in the myth of rational voter. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time talking about all of the ridiculous things that voters believe, and you know, very stubborn, very stubborn about them. Of course, they could be much worse. And this is this is a way that you might go and put a good spin on it. Say, well, at least the, you know, like like they they're not like Vikings from the year one thousand. Right. All right. So yeah, well, I guess that's true. They're not like that. They don't. You know, Americans don't wake up and say, "Can we get on boats and go and invade some other people and enslave them and take their stuff?" So some do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like, like pretty rare. Yes, yeah. So yeah, asset forfeiture or whatever. <laughs> you know, Coast Guard. But uh, yeah, like so again, you know, you know, important to realize that we can go and see. The that the specific mechanisms that we imagine are very influential just don't accomplish nearly as much as, as, as we think. And yet the effect of being in a modern Western culture is still tremendous compared to being in a pre-modern or just or, – or, 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 or backwards culture. But so, I mean, at some point in your book, 
you have this argument that kids don't become left-wing when they go to a left-wing school mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, specifically what I say – well, here's the thing is that almost all schools are left-wing. Right. So given you – know, in terms of the bend of the faculty, so given this, if you thought there was a lot of effective brainwashing going on, we really should see that there be a substantial rise in liberalism as people – the longer people stay in school. And yet when you really look at the data, like, like, you know, like while the effect goes in the right direction, it's so small – which, again, I mean, I think, you know, defenders of education might say, yeah, well, that's because contrary to a lot of right-wing propaganda, e- even Marxist professors are, are committed to, you know, to, to truth and decency and for open discussion. That is a story. That doesn't fit my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the much better story is that most professors and teachers are just not very persuasive. I think they are at least subtly trying to brainwash their students just as their critics would have it. But they're so boring. They're so undynamic. They're so lacking in charisma. And in college, half the kids aren't even in class. Mm-hmm. So put that all together and you, know, you can breathe, at least breathe, breathe a sigh of relief that we're not getting as much brainwashing as we pay for. So I, I, guess, I guess what I'm trying to get at is – I mean you're talking about how a plumber doesn't know, have to know how, what happened in the Civil War. And I grant you he doesn't. And, for, and that's good because he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Lucky for us. But you can make a case that a good citizen should, mm-hmm. right? And – the 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 upshot of a lot of of a lot of your arguments taken as a whole are that um, we can't teach people how to be good citizens. Well, not again, not so much that we can't, but we certainly don't. Uh-huh. We do not. So, I mean, like, like here, so here, are, here are the facts. So, I mean, I'm like, I'm only a messenger. I didn't cause this to be true. So, if you just go and give a survey to randomly selected adult Americans and ask them questions about civics or history. If essentially they are able to get about half of the questions correct, if the questions are incredibly easy, the most, the, you know, in other words, they can basically get, they can correctly answer about half of the most basic questions you can imagine. When you know, like, what century was the Civil War in? Right. We well, name the three branches of government. So randomly selected American can get about half of those questions correct. Right. And it's not because there wasn't a lot of time spent trying to teach them this stuff. So people generally are doing many years of coursework in, in, uh, in uh, history and civics in K through 12 and then you know, even in college a bit more. So it's the kind of thing where you say, look, we put so much effort in and we get so little actual result. Like, and it does make you wonder, so what's going on? I, mean, I think the best story is probably the kids did know a lot more on the day of the final exam, but they just forget it afterwards because they don't use it. So, I mean, you can look at this either in an optimistic or pessimistic way. You could be an optimist and said, well, you know how you say that uh, we can't sustain our democracy unless people really understand a lot? You're wrong because they don't and we've sustained it. So you could do that or you could be a pessimist and just say, my God, like it's just disgraceful how little people know when the fate of the world is in their hands. Right. And, you know, I, I tend to, you know, like I, I, I sympathize with both of the, both of these views. If you were to say, you know, Brian, we'll put you in charge of civics education for the whole nation and see what you can do. Do I think I could do better? I think I could actually. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, and, like, and there's actually a lot of great research on how we could improve learning. What's striking is that hardly anyone in education is, has any interest in this stuff. Today, I'm debating Eric Anyashek, who does have a lot of interest in this, and I think that's great. But striking how little the world listens to people like Eric Anyashek. And, you know, I mean, if you just go and take a look at what kids do in school, like, you know, they're endless hours. But, you know, they're more likely to be, like, doing a poster on the Civil War than actually, like, you know, writing essays about it or learning to understand it on any deep level. So, yeah, so, I mean, like, you know, could civics education be improved? Yeah, but I don't think it's – I think it's very unlikely to happen. And the civics education we've got is pretty much worthless. Uh, I've looked at a lot. I mean, is, as a columnist, one of the easiest – what am I going to write about today – kind of just mailing in columns is you go and you look at 
how many Americans can't name, you know, one member of the Supreme Court. Or, you know, I mean, all, I mean, the, oh, yeah. the, the, the pervasive ignorance out there is, is terrifying, I, I think. But I, I guess what I am getting at is I, I, we both agree that civics education is bad. Are in, in bad shape. Yeah, and, existing edu- actually existing education is civics education is bad. I mean, like, right, and civic knowledge is yeah, bad as yeah, terrible as, as a result and, and, or and not. It, right? And it's not for want of input. So we like put it, we put in a ton of years. If we only did a week on it. Then sure, turn it into a month and get get big results. But we put in years and get almost nothing out of it. But at some level, um, forget the teaching the three R's of civics, communicating you know the values of a democracy matters right and i know you i know they're hard to measure yeah but uh <laughs> and, and i mean you know here's the thing if the stuff that we're explicitly trying to teach them doesn't act, they don't actually remember that then the odds that they're they're picking up an ethos that we never really articulate or test again that i think that sounds like extreme wishful thinking well but there is an ethos right so it's taught from somewhere we pick it up mm-hmm. in the atmosphere somewhere right i mean you say yeah, take yeah, a, yeah, say yeah, someone from the congo and put yes. them in the united states yeah. Yeah. the institutional yeah. arrangements that we have in this society yeah. that seem to be working and i i would argue are breaking down to some extent but are are still more working than not they're communicating something somehow, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, a lot of the stuff I think people just pick up through conformity. So, you know, like like everybody knows that whoever whoever you know, like like is declared to be the winner of the election gets to be the president for four years. Uh, so, like, it, it, you know, like as to how much school, how much matters what schools have actually said versus like everybody else in, in the society. You know, yeah. So, I think you know, like the schools are you know, probably like a very tiny part of it, but also just like the extent to which people really have these values. I mean, I, I say like you know, again, the, the values they're very superficial. They're things like, all right, so like who gets to be the president? Well, it's that guy who got those votes. And you know, you know, a few things like that. You know, the president can't go and just start arbitrarily arresting people. But I mean, but even you know, like, if you really go and look at the you know the average American unromantically, then just to see like what are the values they even hold. I mean, like it, it's just so 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 minimal. I mean, again, it's it's hard to look at. It's disappointing. But but if you had a natural yeah, experiment yeah. where Barack Obama or Donald Trump, I'm not mm-hmm. saying that either would do it, but. They just declared we're we're going to cancel the next presidential election. And I yeah, yeah. Stay in here. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes. there would be a popular yeah. uprising, yeah. and yes, yeah. I mean, but as to, like, I mean, as to how much of that is from schools versus every other thing, part of society, you know, I don't think you could give the schools more than five percent for that. Okay, but but yeah. but parents don't have much of a say either in this stuff. I mean, my point is yeah. is that somewhere mm-hmm. these values, the sort of Deirdre McCloskey bourgeois values that have, you know, uh, caused this great miracle of human wealth and and, and prosperity come from somewhere they have yeah. to be embedded somewhere and yeah. i just think yeah. it's or they can be they I mean, embedded is maybe too strong they have, they're they're floating around all over the place uh-huh. and just by walking through society you event you, know, you do breathe this stuff at, to the point where you re, where where you do accept the idea that a president can't cancel elections but you know, you know so like you know, like you know like basically like, you know, like that any one of these things is the crucial piece seems uh, seems wrong well, and yeah, fine, yeah, but, yes but, yes i mean you put it all together and and yeah so it's it's you know, the whole thing together is a big deal but no, I, I don't think, yeah, look i I, I i honestly believe that if we shut down every university in the country tomorrow we would not all of a sudden lose our democracy i'm not saying that <laughs> but presumably yeah i don't think so either yeah but presumably they matter right and presumably what parents tell their kids matter right and presumably you know the my my problem with i, I think I'm, I'm with you. I'm, 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 I'm to a large extent about the role of reason, right? I mean, I, I think I don't like it, but I think Hume had a point about how, you know, uh, our that reason is a slave to our passions, and I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? And there's that guy think fa- thinking fast and slow, yeah, he has, uh, yeah runs okay. through all that stuff, in. right? But at the same time, 
reason's all we got, mm-hmm. right? And if if we can't make arguments and if, if people don't learn from arguments and can't be persuaded, then it's very difficult to see other than sort of your argument that there's this sort of these molecules in the air that we breathe in and they're the, what keep us from being savages. You got to use the tools that you got, right? And that's schools and that's the family and that's K through 12 and that's journalism and that's, that's, that's all these things. And you, I'm totally open to that. You can't single out anyone and say without this, all the whole house of cards comes crumbling down. But that does not absolve these institutions from taking their piece of the responsibility for doing it right, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. What I would just say is it's worthwhile just to try to measure how big, uh, how big an effect are they actually currently having. And that's where I say, you know, if you really look at the data, it doesn't seem like schools are actually are changing people's minds very much or really preparing them for democracy or what you want, what you want to, what you, or what have you. Or this stuff is yeah. just very hard yeah. to measure. That doesn't mean yes. it's not real. Right. Well, I mean, you know, so it's always possible that there's just something unmeasurable that's really important. But if you want to, if you want to make that argument, you know, let me put it this way. So suppose that we saw that people were learning the tested stuff really well. And then someone said, and you know, in addition to all this tested stuff they learn well, they also get some stuff that's hard to measure. That would that that at least I'd be like, hmm, that's an interesting idea, maybe. But if people aren't learning the stuff that we test them on, to then say they failed to learn what we explicitly tried to do, but we were really great at doing something we don't measure, that's where I say that sounds like people are just making stuff up to make themselves feel better. Okay, well, I'll give you – let me, let me try it this way. One of the things I think that is really valuable about a college education – Actual college education. An actual college – well, yeah, yeah, yes, no, even well, – you know, almost a generic college education, mm-hmm. right? Typ- typical American one. Typical American one. It's not so much everything that you learn, um, although I think that stuff is important if you actually try to learn it. It's it's uh, try to retain it after the final. Yeah, no, but I, I, I'm someone who retained a lot of stuff after yeah, the final. Yeah, but ob- obviously did. But I'm I'm an outlier. I'll grant you that. Yeah, yeah. and um, indeed you are, Jonah. <laughs> in so many ways, an outlier of outliers. And uh, but uh, one of the things that even sort of dumb, lazy students learn, right, is how much they don't know. And, you know, like, um, I think it was Kant who said, the more I, the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. Mm-hmm. And exposing um, young people who I think you'll agree tend to be supremely arrogant and think they have all of the answers to the fact that they don't is itself a useful lesson to take through life and very hard to measure. Yeah, so I would say that you're talking about the cream of the cream. You say, like, well, you might be describing the top 10% of kids at Princeton or a place like that, these supremely arrogant kids who need to have it emphasized to them that they don't really know as much as they think they know. I mean, like, like you know, typical American college student, I would say, is you know, much more marked by apathy and, and, and boredom than, than by any kind of arrogance. So, you know, like, very rarely do I get much arrogance from, you know, from my students at George Mason. You know, like, you know, so, like, you know, there's a lot that just don't bother to show up to class. And then there's other ones who are just there, just, just going through the basic motions. I don't see much sign that they think that they've got things figured out. I think that it's more that they just don't care, mm-hmm. right? Um, so in, in, in terms of like, like, you know, how well it's communicated to them, like how, how little they know, I mean, I don't see – so I, don't, I, I honestly can't see, say, say that I see much sign of, of that in typical students. Again, like maybe like very good students that perhaps they need to have the wind knocked out of them just to go and say, hey, just because you're the smartest kid in the room doesn't mean that you understand the universe. But again, like, like what you're talking about seems to me so rarefied and you're just talking about a – a, a, well, look, I'm a, grasping a, a, at straws here yeah, to yeah. come up with something that can't be measured that I think is a value. Yeah, you know? yeah. 
Um, right, right, and you know, and then the other. So the other thing is that um, I mean, I would I would say that that uh, like just getting a really smart person to say, yeah, there's not there isn't that much that I know. I mean, I I don't even know that that's a very valuable lesson to teach them by itself. I think you need to combine it with the lesson of it. Here are the ways that you can improve. So, you know, like I'm a huge fan of political psychologist Philip Tetlock. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, so he has his book Super Forecasting where, first of all, shows how bad people are at forecasting things. But secondly, he goes and studies the best of the best. Who are, what are people like who are great at forecasting? And he comes up with a list of teachable, trainable habits that you can use. And again, I would think that's really what we need to go and teach the, you know, the cream of the cream, not just to humiliate them and say, hey, kid, what do you know? Yeah, but, but, yeah, but to say, look, here, like, look, kid, you've got a lot of talent. You're misapplying it. And here's what you need to do to actually get good. Start making predictions before you know what happens. For example, that is a great way to train yourself to improve. Well, so, I mean, look, maybe it's because I really do like humiliating, arrogant young people, <laughs> but that's not really precisely where I want to go. My point was more, uh, a more generic one, which is that you know, you go into college kids go into college, even even the apathetic ones, and they are exposed to the fact that there is this really rich, complicated world of both expertise and thought that is that they had not been exposed to before. And, it you know, how to put this, I mean, it it. It gives them a sense of – it might give them yeah, – Might. Might. Okay. A, a <laughs> sense that, you know, first of all, that experts know something. It might give them a sense that um, some problems are actually really hard and are not prone to easy answers. And one of the things I hate about populism is that it reduces mm-hmm. everything to yeah. the easiest possible answer. And if you're you're less likely to be sort of – to work from your ignorance about how the system works, if even if you can't remember anything from the Federalist Papers, you're still left with the gestalt that this was a complicated system that was created for a reason to deal with certain things. Or the same thing with physics and all these things. You know, why can't they make you know cars do this or whatever that? If you're exposed to the fact that some of these some of these problems are hard, mm-hmm. you at least have a certain amount of humility about about how things can't be given to you wrapped up on a silver platter. Is that crazy talk? Well, I mean, I would say that, like, if you were right, I think we could write a test that would actually pick up, pick, pick this up. I mean, you know, like, like, it's not that hard to go and write a test measuring people's intellectual humility and give it to them at the beginning of freshman year of college and at the end of senior year. Okay, you know, I, mean, yeah, I mean, do you really think that people would have a big, a big rise in humility during that time? No, but, no, but, but, they, but they might <laughs> over time. They might remember back, you know, later on when the testosterone yeah. – Bleeds out of them a little bit. Um, yeah, okay, yeah. Again, you know, then, then again, you want to go and compare the people. You know, compare the like, like what happens to people whose testosterone is bleeded out when they're fifty to the other people whose yeah. testosterone okay. is also bled out. So, I mean, you know, like these are all things that are, like they definitely happen to specific individuals. But the idea that it's like a pervasive or large effect. Uh, just just seems you know, like like you know, like 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 wishful thinking to me, and and you know, especially like one of the one of the main things that I learned from psychologists in writing this book is that people can believe something at a very high level and yet not apply it in the real world. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And you know, so someone can have the high the high level view of the world is super complicated, but when they actually go and decide who to vote for, they may still vote for the politician who offers them easy answers because people are just really bad at connecting abstract ideas with anything with 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 any, with any practical task. So in the book I talk about, you know, you know Harvard psychologist Howard Gardner on how on like you know, physics education. So, you know, you you go and teach people physics in a classroom and then give 
give them, you know, to then take them out of the classroom, give them a video game that operates purely on Newtonian physics. And they, and they, and they don't use what they learned in class in the video game because it's like, well, that's classroom physics and this is a real world problem, totally different things. And again, the, like the only way you can really get them to do it is say, you know, use what you learned in class to go and move the turtle into the hole. Right, right, right. All right. You know, but, you know, of course, in the real world, there isn't someone leaning over your shoulder saying, remember the, your humility when deciding how to vote. Right, right. right. There's also, I mean, there's also the, I mean, this is more on your point than mine, but, you know, there's also the the conflict of self-interest versus high-minded principles. And I think we both probably know quite a few corporate types who talk a big game about free markets or Ayn Rand or Friedrich Hayek. Mm-hmm. But when their company has an opportunity to get a subsidy, <laughs> they yeah, sure. are all for it, right? Yeah. Okay. So uh, let me switch gears with the time we have left. I've been reading a lot of Schumpeter over the last couple of years. Yeah. Okay. and Great guy. I love him. And one of the – you know, there's this whole school of thought that I, I think, you know, people attribute to James Burnham. People attribute to, you know, Irving Kristol and, and lots of different people. I think it really comes almost entirely originally – from Schumpeter, and and he gets a lot of it from Nietzsche, which is this idea of the new class, mm-hmm. right? This idea that the captain, you know, the the model is, you know, rich people who are tend to be entrepreneurs and tend to be poorly educated, formally educated, mm-hmm. right? You know, mo- most of the robber barons yeah, in his day, sure, yeah, most of the robber barons barely read a book, right? Yeah, yeah, and, Carnegie sixth grade education, yeah, like that, yeah. And I, I think one of them, one of the most famous ones, I'll remember it later. Um, I wrote about this in one of my books. You know, said he read one book his entire life, and he was, I think, it was Vanderbilt or something, and he was in his 70s, and it was Pilgrim's Progress, you know, and, but their kids go on, but what they tend to do is they Mm -hmm. hyper-educate their kids, right? And so you get captains of industry who then the next generation become, may work in the business, but they may just become lawyers, right? And then three generations out, they become poets, right? Um, And so you get this dynamic where the, and so what comes from Nietzsche is, in Nietzsche, he has this thing about the, the sort of the knights or the nobility and the priestly caste. Mm-hmm. And the priests um, use what they what Nietzsche calls resentment to um, manipulate words and concepts to reward themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think this explain this dynamic explains an enormous amount about the problems that we have today. That as I as I always like to say, complexity is a subsidy. Mm-hmm. Right. The more complex you make society, the more you're rewarding people who either have the cognitive or social capital or, or mm-hmm. capital capital um, resources to manipulate the rules. And mm-hmm. you lock out people who don't. Yeah. Right. And it becomes this self-fulfilling thing like you talk about in the book. My I have this my problem with with colleges and universities is, is different from yours. I actually do believe they are producing a, a different kind of citizen, um, particularly among elite schools. And um, you get these kids. I, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Haidt and um, mm-hmm. and Steve Horwitz, who mm-hmm. you may know. You know, and they make this argument that we're raising these among elites that we're raising this generation of kids who have almost no opportunities to adjudicate interpersonal conflict without a third party authoritarian figure coming in and fixing it. Right? Zero tolerance for bullying. There's no fighting on the playground. Their days are scripted and managed between this league and this class and this tutor and whatnot. And so you get these kids who end up who are sort of, I mean, there's a reason why, as I argue, there's a reason why political correctness has been around for 40, 50 years, Mm -hmm. but it's never been so successful until now. Because for the first time you get kids who, because they've been taught all of their lives, and I mean socially taught, that 
the worst thing in the world you can do is be mean to somebody. The worst thing you can do is hurt someone's feelings. And so all of a sudden, all of this nonsense about trigger warnings and whatnot becomes a or sex contracts, right? Because these kids haven't had to negotiate social life. They have much more vibrancy for these kids because it actually is a way that it sort of it, it, it interfaces with the coddling that they've had coming up. And so I, I find I talk to a lot of business people who talk about this. You get these kids who go to um, you know, Princeton or Harvard or Yale. They've done everything that their parents have asked of them. They checked all the boxes. They got the right credentials. And then they come home and they're like, okay, now give me this implied life that you promised me. And my concern is that we are engineering a system that makes that possible, that, that, that basically gets into this sort of autocatalytic feedback loop that says these kinds of people, we need to arrange the society, we need to manipulate what our priorities are in order to reward them. And I think it's no coincidence that liberalism and progressivism in the last 15 or 20 years, you know, you can always judge a movement by its conception of utopia. And you get a lot of people who seem to think that they want America to be one vast college campus. <laughs> and, you know, I always, whenever I talk to college students, I always, you know, I always try to make this point to them. I'm like, you know, look, so let me get this straight. Because there's this idea that liberalism is, is, is rebellious, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, let me get this straight. You have... You know, the music industry is liberal. Hollywood is liberal. Publishing is liberal. Journalism is liberal. Major, you know, mainstream media is liberal. Um, your professors are liberal. The administrators are liberal. Most of your high school teachers were probably liberal. And you think that you're sticking it to the man by agreeing with them? And, you know, they always look at me, you know, like, what are you talking about? But it's true. There is this enormous amount of conformity bias mm -hmm. towards these certain sets of ideas and this way of talking about things. Now we're seeing it with, with, with um, all the talk about identity politics and white supremacy and all of these kinds of things. And, you know, the other day, uh, Attorney General uh, uh, Jeff Sessions used a phrase he's been using for 30 years about our Anglo-American, you know, heritage in terms of the role of sheriff, which does go back to like a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And people immediately assumed this was a dog whistle to white supremacists and that there was – and people went riot with this. And so – when I look out on society, I see the people who are controlling the commanding heights of the culture aren't businessmen. Um, they're the people who run places like Hollywood and publishing and journalism and universities. And they are constraining what is permissible to talk about in a way that I think has real world ramifications. And so what, what bothers me about your thesis is that you think that there is – Basically, or you seem to be implying that there's basically nothing that can be imparted to these kids that they weren't going to pick up otherwise. And I just don't think that – it just doesn't feel true to me. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, the nothing is way too strong, right? And, of course, you're talking about, you know, many different institutions, not just not just mm -hmm. their education. So it can be – No, parents yeah, are a huge part of the Yeah, yeah but, you know, it can be you – know, the combined effect of all these things together is noticeable. Uh, I mean, I, I would still step back and say that – I think a lot of the perception of the, of kids today being different just comes from social media and the fact that whenever whenever students today go and and, and have a have, there's a scandal or there's a protest it gets shared on social media and everybody hears about it. So you know, like, you know, I mean, I would say that if you if you like you know, like it's at least very plausible to me that the golden age of political correctness was in the 30s, 
when you know it's it's the red decade and yeah. and you know and you know and then it's not just you have to be nice to people but you have to go and worship Joseph Stalin or else or else you're a bad person. So, yeah, or like if you like in the fifties or sixties, you know, like if like if you really had some unusual ideas, uh, you know, like like for for campus at the time, were people really going to be very happy about it back then? Yeah, and so I mean, I would say like a lot of these problems are. It's more that it's easier to see them now with social media than that, than that they are that they have gotten that, you know, that severe. And the other thing is is that you know so you know intellectuals like us. You know, we're people who, if we have an idea, then we try to go and, and arrange our lives to live consistently with the idea. Most people feel no such pressure. There are plenty of people who, in theory, think you should always be nice to people, and yet they're mean people. Yeah, they're no, mean to people true. all the time. Yeah. It's not like the, like the ideas are a straitjacket where they sit around saying, oh, he's going to mean to people a hundred times today, but now I'm not. Instead, it's more likely that they have one statement, never be mean to people, and then they go about their normal lives being mean to other people. So, I mean, I would say that... But institutions you know, can keep people yeah. from... Can have a yes. major influence right. on people not to be mean, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you know, they can, although, again, this is, this is one where, you know, like it's, you know, very, very important to go and contrast the picture that you would get of colleges with the actual experience. So, you know, like the number of times that I have ever had a complaint from a student on a syllabus about the content of my classes, zero times. Mm-hmm. I've never gotten a complaint with a parent. I've never had a student come and say, you offended me, ever. There's but some he, selection bias, yeah, here, right? I mean, there, there, well, you know, you're, 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 GMU. I mean, you're I, an economist, I, you, know. you know. I mean, yeah, so, so I do, although, you know, like, like especially like the undergraduate classes, there's plenty of people from other majors who are taking those classes just to get some credit. Uh, so, again, I'm not saying, you know, like, you know the, the thing you're talking about, I believe that the direction of change is bad and that you're, you're correct about what's happening, but I just think it's a lot smaller and much less significant than, you know, than like almost anybody thinks because people are so influenced by these vivid stories. Uh, rather than, but you know, and, you know like, you know, like my first hand experience of just, you know, like, like there's really only one college I've ever been at where I actually felt uncomfortable, like Big Brother was watching me, and that's Oberlin. Yeah, well, that, that's believable. <laughs> All right, when I was on Oberlin, I'm like, my God, this place is, is it, like, really is like being in Maoist China, where everywhere there's propaganda to watch out for something that doesn't appear to exist at all. You know, this is pretty. This place is pretty weird. But everywhere else, you know, there they, again, there's like some official statements. But then when you actually are on the ground and see it, it's like, you know, it's just not this. You know, like there's just a, there's just this disconnect between official theory and practice. Which, I mean, as I often like to say, I mean, like we owe so much of the, many of the good things in our world to hypocrisy because people's explicit ideas are often so terrible mm-hmm. that if we did what they explicitly said consistently, it would just be a disaster. Whereas fortunately, people are pretty hypocritical, and so human life can go on. Yeah. Okay. But all right. So. Some of this can be measured. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the data on young people's uh, commitment to free speech mm-hmm. has been plummeting for a while now and are being trending down for a while. And uh, the idea that and, – and, and young people saying that they believe in socialism has been going up for mm-hmm. a while, yeah. right? Now, I, I find the free speech one more troubling than the socialism mm-hmm. one because socialism is just like a schmoo word. Mm-hmm. They think it sounds good. They don't know what it is, right? And if you actually mm-hmm. – you know impose socialist policies that took away their iPhones, they would be very upset. <laughs> um, and yet, you know, I mean, this research on free speech goes back a long time, and there's a big contrast between commitment to free speech in the abstract and commitment to free speech for any particular group. So, you know, like one of the main things that public researchers have been doing since the 50s, at least, is, you know, do you believe in free speech? Totally. How about free speech for atheists? Well, not them. How about free speech for communists? No, not them. So, I mean, I think a lot of what we're seeing now is that the the groups that people don't want to tolerate are, are indeed changing. So, you know, like 20 years ago, no one would say, we need like we can't tolerate people that won't use gender neutral pronouns. So yeah, you know, whereas to now people are not don't want to go and persecute communists anymore, 
right? But uh, it's not so clear at all that the total level of intolerance is, is, is actually is actually changing to me. Uh, you know, like so, it's clear that it you know sort of changes its forms. But important to remember, there never was a golden age of free speech. There oh, never, I there, yeah, there never was a time when people, you know, you know like there, there may have been a time a lot of Americans would say, "Oh yeah, free speech is great." But if you go and then start probing them to find out, like any particular case. You know, so, you know, like I mean, like like in the mid '90s, there was a survey that I remember where you know a lot of people wanted to censor Rush Limbaugh. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think I don't remember. It might have even I can't don't remember. That. I think it was even a majority said like you should not be able to be on the radio and make fun of the president, right? And I bet probably a lot of those people would have said, "Oh, free speech is great," but when you ask them for a concrete thing, then suddenly they forget the abstract idea. Yeah, no, look, I agree with that, and I'm a big believer that there is a sort of that that it's it is. It is more of a moving target about where what what is tolerated and what is not tolerated, but not all censorship is equal, right? Um, I am steadfastly in favor of censorship for child pornography. Mm-hmm. I am not steadfastly in favor of censorship for people who want to defend, who want to say something nice about Christianity, mm-hmm. right? And so you may be right that the total amount of censorial attitude mm-hmm. hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. But it does matter when the target of it changes, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, well, of course, if it's targeted at you, then it's very unpleasant. <laughs> well, but <laughs> I, but no, but I mean, look, I mean, but it's not a moral equivalence point. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. There, there are something there, there. It's it's sort of like um, you know, uh, uh, my objection to campaign finance reform is I'm actually a defender of many forms of censorship. Um, uh, it's almost impossible to do now because of the internet. But back in the day, I, I think you can make a case for, you know, for community censorship about indecency and all that kind of stuff. But what the, the normal argument about protecting a civil right is that we have to defend this extreme thing because if we defend the out, stuff on the out, outskirts of our civilization, we'll make sure that our core freedoms are remain untouched, right? And my problem with campaign finance reform is the same people who are entirely in favor of unregulated obscenity, strip clubs, whatever, um, want to regulate political speech, which was the core of what the First Amendment is for, right? And um, you're not – and I think you could make a case that that these distinctions matter, that, that being – Saying that free speech for people who disagree about core political questions is different from saying you're against free speech for child pornographers. And um, and civilizations – I mean if Deirdre McCloskey is right that you know the kind of speech that we value when we extol matters a great deal. Um, so it just, it, it's not satisfying to me when you, when you argue that it's – well, there's always been censorial attitudes and all the rest. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. But the substance of what people want to censor has huge importance. Yeah, so I mean, but again, so like in the fifties, you know, like, would have been very popular censor communists. That is a very, that is a fundamental political political disagreement. Um, you know, it was it was the main disagreement raging at the time, and yet sure. you know there you know and you know there were communists who went to jail. Um, over it, so you know, so I mean, to me, it's just the question of like, 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 are things right now especially bad or not? Right? You you could say, well, things are bad now, and they've always been bad, and you know, the, you know, in a way, that's more depressing, but at the same time, it does give you some perspective. So you know, you know, you know I, I like yeah, the perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's useful yeah. and it's interesting. Um, I just there's a certain amount of that's why I wanted to get meta about the three yeah. books is because I mean, there is a, there's a sort of a very studied and erudite and informed passivity about the ability of institutions or individuals to influence the direction of 
of individual lives or the society at large. And it seems to me it's 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 a really interesting beat you've got. <laughs> um, and I, I certainly agree with you entirely that the the outrageous subsidy that we have for higher education could really use some green eye shades. Um, but they're at this sort of larger level. Right, so I can get you to sign on to ed- some educational austerity? Sure. All right, great. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean uh, so, so well, I'm glad I can get one person in the AEI building that, uh, to, to say that. So I'm, I'm debating this later today. I don't think I'm going to get that out of Henyashek, although I'm, I'm, I'm going to try. We have um, see what I can do. We have a, a, a rich plurality of ideological viewpoints here at AEI. Um, unlike a lot of think tanks, we don't have a single party line on anything. Anyway, I want to thank you very much for coming in. This was a lot of fun. And um, uh, uh, it's the case against higher education. No, no, no it's uh, the case against education. So case against I, education. I, 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 I do. I spend a lot of time in high school in the book too. So it's not you know. So like it, it is much more fundamental than just college specifically. And uh, it's only twenty bucks on Amazon. So order now. You can't. You can't afford not to buy it, right? <laughs> but then again, no one can learn anything. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Brian Clapton. This has been a lot of fun. All right, thanks a lot. All right, so uh, Brian Kaplan has left the studio, and we're going to do some quick various and sundry stuff, and uh, then i got to get out of here for a um, secret off-the-record thing that I can't talk about on the record. Uh, Jack, what did you think of all that? Uh, these libertarian economists are very smart people. Uh, they're sort of overwhelming to listen to at times because they clearly know their stuff. It was uh, – I think it's really, really interesting stuff. I do think, and I'm sort of with Russ Roberts on this, that there is a bit of measurability bias and the problem. And I think he's, I think Brian's absolutely right that the problem with saying that there are things that you can't measure is that you can't prove it, right? (laughs) Because if you could prove it, you could measure it. But it just does seem to me that there is, and maybe it's just because I've spent so much time and as have you working on this book, uh, Suicide of the West, pre-order now, that, you know, words, institu- if, if words and institutions don't matter, nothing matters, right? I mean, you know, I mean, it's it's sort of a turtles all the way down thing. You can take out one turtle, but you still got a long line of turtles. You know, the what is a culture, if not a collection of ideas and narratives and concepts married to certain institutions that um, have a vested interest in perpetuating those ideas and concepts um, in this sort of, uh, you know, uh, virtuous cycle, then you can't really talk intelligently about culture at all, you know. And the idea that I'm entirely in favor of or sympathetic to the idea that universities don't have the impact that their biggest boosters have, uh, bigger that their biggest boosters think they have, but the idea that they don't have a tangible, real impact that may, may be hard to measure – um, that is very important and, and real, I think just I don't find persuasive. You know, it's sort of to me like, as I, as I put it in the book, you know, the fatalists might be right that there's no such thing as free will. The problem is, is that you have to live your life like there's something that there is free will. Otherwise, why would you get out of bed, right? Um, otherwise, you just become a leaf on the wind. And at least in my line of work, your line of work, his line of work, it may be hard to measure. It may be hard to prove. It may be pushing a wet noodle across the floor. But if you don't believe that persuasion and education and conversation and institutions and all of these things 
matter, you kind of have to still act as if they do because you don't have any other tools to work with. You can't mm-hmm. just passively sit on the sidelines. But as a matter of public policy, I think he makes a great, great argument about how we overemphasize education. I'm a big believer. I love community colleges because I think they're better at educating people who want to get value out of their degrees. And uh, I think apprentice programs and all that kind of stuff are great and we should do more of them. But I still, I just, maybe I'm just bad at this, but I just can't go the full way that he goes on some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, parts of his argument remind me of Zeno's paradox. I mean, if you, in which if you define reaching a destination as just progressively having the amount of distance you have until you reach it, then you're right, going halfway, not ha- not owning, but half. Yes, having. Right. Sorry, there was my, whatever. Maybe whatever accent I actually have just revealed itself because I, I didn't pronounce that L very well. But anyway, yeah. So in the Zeno view, then you can never actually go anywhere. But obviously we do move. So right. there must be something actually going on in the, in the Kaplan case with whatever we're doing institutionally, educationally, and in the Zeno case with the, the sheer locomotion of, of human existence. So, yeah. I mean I, what I probably should have said during the interview and the point I was trying to get at about the culture of college campuses. You know, he says that most of the work that you do for your career, you do on the job. And I think that's probably true. Um, I can attest to that. Yeah, you know how to edit <laughs> podcasts now. Um, although we don't want to revisit what happened with episode 11. No, the world's not ready. But, you know, the culture of how you live in college, I think, has lasting impacts on the kind of citizens that come out of college, whether they're conservative or liberal or libertarian, just sort of, and the same thing with K through 12, the culture of K through 12, even if they don't remember that there are three branches of government or they don't know that you're not supposed to split infinitives, you, you were living in a microculture in a, in a real world place and it shapes the kind of person that you are. And, and whether you, you know, it's, it's what, you know, the, what, what's the social scientist's name? The guy who came up with the phrase habits of the heart, um, it'll come to me, but you know, is it perfectly intended? Is there a, you know, a one-to-one relationship with what a teacher sets out or an administrator sets out to inculcate in, in a young person and what they become? No. Same thing with parents, but you got to assume that they have some influence in part because it just seems obvious to me that they do, even if it doesn't get measured too easily. Okay. I'm actually really pressed for time. Uh, we have some quick various and sundry stuff to get through. Uh, the first one, uh, whether it's exciting or not, I don't know, is that JonahGoldberg.com is now live. Yes, it is. And um, Jack, can you – so right now, can people comment on it? No. Right? No, and I don't want them to because there is no function for that. So don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they can they can contact us through the website. Yes. Yeah. And we'll be able to address in longer form or I'll be able to address in longer form comments, concerns, suggestions about the podcast and whatnot – you know, right now it's pointing mostly towards ways to um, help me move and sell and get the and promote the book, but it's going to be a sort of a permanent adjunct to this podcast as well. And when we mention something here about a a book or a um, an article or whatever, we will put links up um, at the site um, in due course. To that's where they'll be. So it's basically the website for the podcast as well. Right. That, that sure. I mean, you're the boss. Yeah. It can be whatever you want it to be. And, and well, within reason. And a uh, second issue is the, the early reviews of it, at least on Twitter, are that it is woefully deficient in canine material. And we're going to discuss how we can get uh, incorporate more dogs onto the site because I think that's a legitimate complaint. On the Internet, no one knows you're a dog. 
So I had an idea, which maybe listeners can email us about, and the email address is? Oh, it's just my email. I'm the I'm the I'm the listed contact information. Okay, no, but the podcast email. Oh, oh, oh okay. I thought you were talking. Which about also goes straight to you too. But, I thought yeah. you were. Now it goes to the podcast robot. Um, but the website email is my email. But the podcast email is theremnantpod at gmail dot com. Right. So uh, I was talking with somebody, and this is news to Jack about the podcasting industry um, and whatnot. Um, actually, I was talking to a couple people. I was I, I did a, a Federalist Radio podcast with. Um, ben Dominich uh, yesterday, and that's up, and we talk about all sorts of never Trumpy Trumpism, populism stuff, and some people might be interested in that. But you know, one of the things that really drives numbers on podcasts is frequency, and doing it once a week is good and fine, and it certainly fits our schedule. Um, but one of the ideas that was suggested to me, not by Ben but by somebody else, was because um, a lot of people do want rank punditry on this thing. And one of the ideas was to do two a week, one that would just be sort of punditry, news of the day, news of the week, what's going on, uh, maybe have a guest from NR or elsewhere to talk about, you know, politics. And then the other one would be the super wonky nerd fest type stuff that we did with people like Brian Kaplan. If people think that's a good idea or a bad idea or have a third alternative idea, um, let me know. Um, you know, the advantage of doing the pundit thing is that that's actually easy. It's doing these sort of things with smart, interesting people that you got to bring in from outside that takes a little more production work. And, um, oh, the last um, exciting piece of news is it has formally been announced. I am now the Cliff Asnes Chair in Applied Liberty at the American Enterprise Institute, which is just plain old really cool and a big honor. Cliff Asnes is a big fan of AI and he's a friend of mine and he's a fan of the work that we do here. And he was incredibly generous to endow a chair that I get to, you know, figuratively and then literally sit in and people ask, what does applied liberty mean? Um, the way I define it is that there's a lot of theoretical stuff about liberty. There's a lot of theor theoretical stuff and platitudinous stuff about, about liberty and freedom. And there's a lot of libertarian mathematical stuff about all that. And, and for those who don't know, Cliff Asnes is, is a warlock. He does all sorts of weird things with squiggly lines and numbers. But the idea of applied liberty is actually figuring out, sort of like we were talking about with Kaplan here, about the interplay of how culture and idealism and, and, and real life, how they interplay and how they work and how you can advance one through the other. And um, it's a great honor. I'm, I'm, I know I sound like I'm not over the moon. I am. I'm just really exhausted. The, I thought the soil wasn't going to be frozen when I was burying that body, and um, I'm just I'm wiped out. But um, I want to thank Cliff Asnes. I want to thank AEI, and I want to thank all the people who've been sending me nice notes about all of this. And do we have any other action items that we need to address? Oh, uh, well, there were two things from last week that I wanted to bring up. Okay. People, the, the angriest people have gotten about anything you've said in this podcast yet was last week when you uh, confused Gamera and Gadira, the G Godzilla mon. Well, one of them is Gamera is not from the Godzilla. Gamera, franchise, yeah, yeah, yes. not and from that franchise proper. I'm, I'm ashamed. Look, I'm, I'm deeply ashamed of this. I wish you had told me about this before we started recording. This is this is a huge, huge mis mis mistake for me, and it's not that I was confused of who they were is that John thought he knew the answer and I agreed with him. Right? Yeah, John led you astray, not, yeah. probably not for the first time. And I was I was hugely into Gamera. I mean, Gamera was awesome. For those who don't know, Gamera is a, is a flying 
turtle of not made by Tojo Productions, which is Godzilla, but sort of of that genre. Um, and the way he flew is jets of flame would come out of his leg holes and he would spin around as he flew through the air. You can find them on YouTube quite easily. And uh, and I should say, you know, for people who are interested in this kind of stuff, I actually have an extensive section in the book about Godzilla. That's true. Um, I have very strong views about Godzilla. Okay, so what's the other action? Oh, but anyway, my apologies to everybody. It was a mistake. I recognize the mistake. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. The other thing is just this is also related to John. Uh, he said online when he meant in line. Uh-huh. Well, that's a New York thing. I, I, I was watching uh, The Godfather Part 2 recently, and they, they used the same thing. I was fascinated to hear that in the, in the real world. Yeah, so this – and I use online too. Yeah, and, um, it's weird to me. But. I never knew that it was a New York thing until I had lunch with Jay Nordlinger 18 years ago when he was still working at the Weekly Standard. I don't know it was 18 years ago, 15 years ago. And I was working at AI, and we had lunch because we were in the same building, and people wanted me to meet him. And I said something about how I was waiting online at a movie theater, and, and he was like, online? That's it? You must be from New York City, because only New Yorkers say that. Yeah, and he's from Michigan originally. Yeah. What do you, you're from Ohio. Do you say what, – what, how do you describe Coca-Cola products? Uh, it's pop. Yeah, well, that's wrong. <laughs> what do you decide – how do you describe athletic footwear? Uh, this is one thing I was actually confused about because I didn't, I remember tennis shoes from my youth, but also gym shoes, but never sneakers. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's either, it's usually gym shoes, but I remember hearing tennis shoes bandied about. Yeah, I'm, I'm a sneakers man through and through. Um. Sneakers. There are actually some great maps, um. Yeah. About dividing the country up by these phrases. And the New York Times, I think, did this great, or someone did this great. Yeah, it was New York Times. I'm obsessed with that quiz because every time I take it, it, it does not show that I'm from anywhere. I'm a nowhere man, linguistically, which bothers me. Yeah, it gets me down to almost like my my street address growing up, which was 255 West 84th Street. (laughs) Um, And, uh, okay, so anyway, thanks everybody for listening. Let me know what you think about all of that. Um, I'm sorry if I sound disjointed and and out of it. Again, between the grave digging and the viscera that's still under my fingernails, I'm just a little out of it and distracted. And I'm just happy it wasn't my body. Yeah, Give it time. And tune in next time for The Remnant. Thank you.